everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Manufacturing IT Podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Ryan Thompson. Uh, Ryan is the Industry 4.0 Advisor at Skellig. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Um, so appreciate your, your time here, Ryan. So maybe you could start by giving us a bit of an overview into kind of a little bit about yourself and uh, who Skellig are. Sure. Thanks so much. Um, so obviously, my name is Ryan. Um, I like to describe myself as a recovering controls engineer. Um, I've been in this space uh, about 15 years, but in manufacturing for about 17 years, I had a brief um, stint in automotive uh, upon graduating from, from university. Um, but that was kind of too up and down for me. So I went into a more controls oriented background with a company called Rantech that focused on food and beverage and pharmaceutical uh, manufacturers. Um, I started there as a controls engineer back in, in 2007, um, kind of progressive expansion of roles. Um, so I would do things like PLC programming, HMI design, SCADA design. Um, after about five years, I mean, Grantech was a pretty flat organization, like a lot of systems integrators. And so you kind of got roles and responsibilities, not necessarily based on job title, but based on, hey, just, you know, what fits and you're kind of creating your own job as you go. And so I kind of took on more project management uh, activities, um, kind of transitioned gradually over five years from like a hybrid engineer project manager to more of a project manager. And then after about five years of that, I took more of a hybrid project manager slash um, sales role, which we called client success. Um, and then in 20... 2017, we had a client that was was building a new facility in, in Florida. So I picked up my life from Toronto and <laughs> moved to South Florida um, to support that operation and then kind of grow business outside of that. Um, so I did that for just about four years. So, so we had an office in, in Florida and, and grew that to, you know, up to five people. And, um, you know, just in February of this year, I started a new role with a company called Skellig. And Skellig is a life sciences focused manufacturer, specifically in, in biotech, but really all life sciences, I would say probably 80% of our businesses in biotech though. And Skellig was started around 12 years ago, primarily focused on, on Delta V. Um, but probably, you know, 90% of our work right now is Delta V work. And, but we recognize, um, you know, in the future, kind of open technologies are, are, are where we think the future is. That's where I personally think the future is. That's where Skellig thinks the future is. And so around two years ago, Skellig started investing in an innovation group looking at, at newer technologies, industry 4.0 focused, mm -hmm. um, things like you know, inductive automation, uh, things like MQTT protocols, you know, and how do we look at, you know, how can we leverage what we know in life sciences and all we know about you know procedures and regulations now can we focus that to the you know industry 4.0 and farmer 4.0 so that life sciences which is kind of usually a laggard in technology mm -hmm. adoption can you know take advantage of these new technologies um without you know understanding what what their legacy systems are you know we're, we're skellig is awesome with delta v we're great with delta v delta v is not going away mm -hmm. but we need to be able to leverage what we what you have uh, with Delta V with with these newer technologies. Leverage cloud platforms and advanced uh, analytics and artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, and architectures that that support all of that. Um, so my role as an industry 4.0 advisor is I guess it's 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 dual. It's both you know Skellig or internal facing you know looking at technologies that that can help us and how we can market them 
you know, how we can set up training and make sure our engineers are prepared to deliver them, you know, picking best in breed technologies while remaining still technology agnostic. And yeah. so that's, you know, something that's really important to us is that we're not, you know, getting our customers into an ecosystem that they can't get out of. We want to be able to pick best in breed technologies of, you know, whether that's an MES or an AI platform or a SCADA platform or even, even a PLC platform. We want to make sure everything is open and, you know, we're giving our clients the best advice for that. And the other, you know, so there's that Skellig side of it. And then there's also the external side of it where I want to be, you know, an advisor for our clients and helping them pick paths forward and, and being, you know, honest and open with them about the pros and cons of choices that they're making. Um, and, you know, setting them up for success, ultimately, you know, with any integrator, your success is ultimately determined by, you know, your, your customer success. Yeah, no, definitely right. I think that's a really good overview. And um, thanks for sharing that. And I guess the, the beauty of your kind of career trajectory is it allows you to, to kind of really understand challenges on the shop floor, understand the OT side of the business, and really kind of be able to be that advisor to your clients. So makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things I'm always kind of keen to hear is, is what the different interpretations are of Industry 4.0. So, you know, given your time before, you know, maybe Industry 4.0 wasn't the, the buzzword it is now, but what, what's your interpretation of Industry 4.0 and what does the kind of terminology mean to you? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's still sort of a, a buzzwordish to Industry 4.0. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, oh, we'll just put it in the cloud and it will solve yeah. all the problems. Out the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or you just will we'll digitally transform. And, and that's that. <laughs> the most important thing about Industry 4.0 is that it's it's open. Um, and there's, you know, there's certain architectures that are going to support that and not support it. But the fact that you, you have everything in an open ecosystem really is what I feel is going to drive a lot of value out of this. I think one of the things that has really kind of opened my eyes is when you start taking OT problems and using IT tools to tackle them, you're switching from like a really niche user base that has, you know, I don't know how many system integrators there are on the world, tens of thousands, maybe something like that. But when you go into the IT space, now you're talking about tens of millions of people mm. uh, who have, who have solved these types of problems before at scale. Um, and, you know, have, you know, we all have, I think we all experience IT outages in our life because it's so built into how we go about our day to day. Um, but, you know, IT infrastructure is, you know, just as reliable as as controls and infrastructure, if not more often, you know, maybe not on mm -hmm. the like that that plant level where you have that IT OT cross. But like when you have like, you know, AWS uptime versus, you know, a generic facilities yeah. IT network uptime, it's not even close. Right. Um, you know, and, and that's when you think about cloud solutions and things like that, it's like, oh, everybody is so concerned about their internet connection, but your internet connection is usually a lot more reliable than whatever you've got going on in the factory. And, yeah. But I think like, I, I kind of went on a tangent there, but that openness of industry 4.0 is really what's going to leverage everything. And you can choose now, now that you've got data that's readily available anywhere, you, you know, you want to use AWS or Azure or some sort of other, you know, more niche offering that's been curated around what you're doing. Um, just having everything open allows you to do that versus yeah. you spend so much time in these in three three factories extracting things out of black boxes, <laughs> and and, it, and yeah. it makes it makes getting value to that data a lot more a lot more difficult. Yeah, that that visibility really, uh, I guess, makes a lot of sense. Um, Ryan, one of the things I was also keen to hear is obviously, you know, your background. You mentioned previously, you know, food and beverage and, and pharma, and and obviously now we're scaling. Appreciate only four months into the role, but it's mainly a biotech 
um, customer base. What are the kind of common challenges that you're speaking about with clients? And is there like a common thread among the challenges that you're seeing? Um, so I guess biotech is very different than, than the rest, I'll say. Um, you know, food, depending on the manufacturer, tends to be more commoditized and they're very much focused on OEE and getting value out of that and, you know, making sure uptime is 100%. Pharmaceuticals can go both ways, where it's like if you're making, you know, generic aspirin, your mm -hmm. OEE matters. Um, but if you're making, you know, a, a pill that's $100 a dose, um, your OEE doesn't matter as much as your batch. And, and biotech takes that one step further where you're getting especially now into these like cell and gene therapies and personalized yeah. medicines and, 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 but even biologic, sometimes you're looking at $30,000 a dose or something like that. And so the value in OEE, you, you don't hear biotech companies talk about it too much, although it's there. Um, yeah. You know, they need to optimize things like, you know, their cells or, or their batch titers and, and their cell counts and things like that, where, where they're trying to optimize a lot more different things. And, you, and actually they lend itself to these AI models um, a little bit more because, you know, these models tend to make sense of the data better than, than humans can. And yeah, that makes sense. They also have sophisticated data science teams that can help them and, and their goals are to optimize these processes because, you know, if, if they can increase their cell counts, they, you know, it makes our products a lot cheaper. But, you know, it's also more of a societal challenge too, where it's like, you know, we have all these great um, therapies and remedies, but, um, you know, affordability is still an, an, an important thing. And if we can get mm -hmm. these, you know, costs down for these medicines um, to be more palatable, um, it'll make a big difference for, you know, society in general. No, that makes a lot of sense. And you raise a good point there. I didn't really think too much about, you know, there may be more commoditized production and focusing more on the OEE side. And, and then we talk about cell and gene personalized medicine where, you know, as you say, the batch is, is really important. So, yeah, I can understand both of those, both of those sides of the spectrum. Um, so, so when you're talking to customers, who are you typically speaking to? Is it from the OT world, the IT world? Where are you kind of, you know, picking, picking to, to have the first conversation? Um, so I guess there's a mix. I, most of, I would say most of our contacts are, are still on the OT side. Yeah. Um, the IT side often comes in when you start looking at, you know, what kind of solutions you want to be offering. Um, the OT side is what, you know, what problems do we need to solve? How can we improve the business? Mm -hmm. um, and then the IT side is more, hey, tools and information and data security. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I think nowadays too, you know, you still often hear about, you know, IT and OT people fighting and there, there's certainly some truth to that, but I, I, I think that's kind of gone away. I think most customers yeah. now are, our focus is a you know coherent business where IT is a problem solver um, and value add for the for for their company, and you don't get into these oh you can't put this device on my network. It's more of a how can we put this device on my network in a secure way. Um, but yeah, like I, we're still those conversations we have are are more first on the OT side, but the IT IT team is not far behind. No, that, that's interesting. And I guess, you know, there was always that IT, OT and challenges and lack of maybe communication between that. So interesting to hear that you're seeing that maybe dissipate a little bit. So that, that's, that's good to hear. Um, you know, particularly when you are having those OT or conversations with people on the OT side of the business, is there um, a common challenge that people like that are having and, and you're seeing a, a particular IT solution that's solving that? Is there, you know, something in particular that's having particular success at the moment? Um, I, I, I mean, every customer has their own 
problems they're trying to solve. And mm. um, I think people are still trying to really make sense of this industry 4.0 space and figure out where, you know, where they are and where they want to be. I think mm. a lot of times um, customers want to jump the gun and all of a sudden, oh, I want to have this, you know, adaptive factory with, you know, AI, AI running everything. And, but, the, you know, it's, it's a lot of work to get there and, and really getting roadmaps in place um, is important. I think a lot of people really want fast time to value. I mean, of course, everybody wants that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, proof of value types of projects are really attractive um, where you can, hey, let's come in and, and do this project and in a month we're going to get a return on our investment. I think those, <laughs> those types of projects are great and exciting. I think it also is helping to change the mindset, whereas, you know, if you looked at some of these projects, even five years ago, you might have said, oh, this is going to cost us half a million dollars uh, to do this. And it's all customized engineering work. And, you know, how do we validate this, which is, you know, obviously huge in life sciences where you yeah. can't sell something you can't validate often and but I think now like you know part of that you know part of my job and part of our job as an industry is to kind of educate manufacturers on no these these things don't cost half a million dollars you can you can do a lot with you know fifty thousand dollars and start building on that and so you you have companies like that and then you have other companies where it's and you know, they believe that just investing in technology is going to yield unexpected results. And that's on the side that, that I lean on, right, is, you know, what's the value of, of putting infrastructures in place that allow you to, to put these types of, of projects out there quickly? I had, you know, a customer, this would have been, in, you know, four years ago or so, um, where we, we put in kind of an open sourced MES system for them um, based on, a, you know, a, a kind of type of un, unified namespace type of architecture, although, you know, we didn't call it that. It was more of a, let's, you know, sneak it in type of thing. <laughs> um, so we, we built the SEMES system. Everything was great there. Um, they were, you know, part of our Operation Warp Speed. And um, the, I guess we put in the MES system prior to, to, to that. This, they, they were kind of a smaller company. Operation Warp Speed happened. It disrupted their business. Um, they had to go from, you know, tens of thousands of units to millions, if not billions of units. <laughs> wow. um, but because we had the infrastructure in place already, it made that really easy. We had a couple of nice, like, information or, or I guess, analytics projects that we were able to just, hey, we've already got this data all contextualized because of the architecture we built. This is a bolt-on project and it's going to take us two weeks and now we're getting value and, and we've got dashboards up and people are making good decisions. Um, so, you know, could they have predicted that in, in 2018 that that's what they were going to get with the infrastructure they put in with their MES system? No, but they yeah. were a startup company that believed in, you know, technology being an innovator and a driver and just having that infrastructure in place was going to yield something unexpected. You know, similar to how, you know, companies like, you know, Google or Alphabet and Facebook or whatever, they just give their developers, you know, time to yeah. just go explore things and something yeah. good is going to happen from that. And when, when you can... When you have enough of it going on, you're going to get lucky. Or not lucky, but something good is good is going to happen to you every once in a while. It's it's harder when you're super small, where it's like yeah. if you've got one guy that's just <laughs> they're experimenting. He might he he might make something great, or he might never do anything. But if you have a hundred, you know, one of those people are are, are going to have something that works. Stumble on something. And so I think that's you know if if you're able to make an infrastructure that supports all of this you're going to find all sorts of use cases and value and it's going to reduce you know your total capital expenditure and but you don't know how yet and it's harder you know without the right project sponsors like i can't go to you and say what my roi is going to be 
because I don't yeah. know what it's I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know you know how it's going to reduce our capital costs. You could pay me you know a hundred thousand dollars and I can do a study for you. To, yeah. To <laughs> or you can invest a hundred thousand dollars in the infrastructure and find out yourself. So I, there's people that do have that mentality and just hey, we believe in this infrastructure. We believe good things are going to happen. But there's also the other side that um, says no, let's do POVs and 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 build on that. And and both can work and both do work. Uh, yeah. But just is you know a different mindset and, and culture at the company. I think it kind of sorry I'm going on here. You know fits into you know where they are with their. Um, uh, the d digital transformation in that um, the digital maturity model. That's what I was looking for is, you know, are we, a, a, and not necessarily where they are, but a strong idea of where they want to go versus yeah. I have no idea. Um, uh, and both are okay. No, what, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And um, I guess that, that was kind of, it leads us on nicely really to kind of one of my next questions and around it is that digital maturity kind of conversation. And I just want to kind of touch on something you mentioned about that that kind of innovation and, and giving engineers uh, a bit of time to create those use cases, create something maybe a little bit unexpected. And a lot of that's going to come from the culture of the business, right? That's going to come from a business that is digitally mature, digitally ready to, to bring these solutions into. But I guess, are you finding that um, it's a challenge to identify the businesses that are primed for a digital transformation that are maybe mature, more mature than others? I don't know if it's difficult to identify them. And okay. it's, it, I think there's always, it's, I guess make, there's people at every plant that want that want to do these types of things, but mm. sometimes they're just not necessarily in the right position. Yeah. Um, and, and having that kind of sponsorship to just, you know, go and, you know, if you're going to fail, fail fast. Um, but I think that's, you know, one of these things where it's, you know, it, if you if you're having trouble getting a customer to buy into like a, a two week demo or, or two week proof of value that's going to cost fifteen thousand dollars and maybe you're kind of knocking on the wrong door and you might have somebody that believes in it and but you really need to get to you know somebody who can be a suitable project sponsor because the other thing i mean i think it's getting to be a bit of a cliche now but digital transformation is not a, it's not a technology project right it's mm. You know, there's technology that's part of it, but it's probably 10% of the project is technology. All of these technologies work reasonably well um, if you have the right partner that can integrate the solutions for you. Like, you're not going to have a product that doesn't do what it say what it says it's going to do. Um, yeah. But you will have problems with you know if, if you're not involving operators in your solutions and they don't want to use the system or or, yeah. or this new model. They don't like the way it's doing it because if you're not building that culture of and then you never get the return on investment because you might have put in this awesome, you know, paper replacement tool, and and but the operator hates it for whatever whatever the reason is. Maybe mm. they have to, and and some of the reasons are and people you know at first pass might think they're silly, um. But if if you if you have to do you say you have to log into a system to uh, you know enter a piece of information, you have to do that. 50 times a day like mm. typing in your username and password is, is going to be a, a pet peeve and you're not going to like yeah. and you might think you know as a, as a designer or an engineer is like well you know they have to log in that's just something they have to do and it's going to mm. take them 10 seconds. but you have to do that multiple times there, there's lots of things in in your life that are small annoyances but if you do them enough they become like oh yeah and so i i guess that's the other thing is making sure that you know whoever is using the solution is is kind of involved from the beginning yeah. And 
you know, it could be that, you know, the people that are using the systems are, are, are business level users that are working at dashboards and then, you know, you're working with them. But if you're doing something where it's, you know, an op changing the way an operator works, you have to be working with them right from the beginning and building that culture of acceptance. But I think going back to the original point, that's we're making sure that you have a, a project sponsor that can make sure these things happen because, you know, as an integrator or contractor, it's hard to go into a business to drive change. You know, who are you? Why are you, why are we doing this? Yeah. Uh, if you don't have a, you know, sponsorship say, no, this is the way we're, we're going to do it. And that's, you know, another problem with uh, with these industry 4.0 projects is oftentimes they're kind of done as like an over the top. So we already have this existing system, but we're going to add like an analytics layer onto it. <laughs> yeah, I've seen this. You never have to use it because the other system never goes away. And mm -hmm. so it's harder to get by in there because they they, use, they still have the backup plan of, of using whatever they had before. Um, yeah. so I, and you know, having a good project sponsors make sure that you know that that doesn't happen. That makes a lot of sense. And just the same you mentioned about digital transformation being maybe ten percent around tech. And I think I've always prescribed to the the thought that it's a mind digital transformation is a mindset. It's a, a cultural shift within the business. And I think getting that getting that buy in and, and making sure everybody is looking for the same uh, outcome is, is really pivotal. And you mentioned about you know companies. How do, well, I guess let me rephrase why. So, with so many companies offering digital solutions or integrating solutions, how can a, a manufacturer identify the right partner and, and kind of you know what what is it that, that you provide or what is it that the company you represent provide to, to help customers know that they've got a trusted advisor, somebody who's got you know the vision of a long term relationship, not just kind of flip some licenses or some services and and, and you know not care. How can companies identify the right partner? So I, I guess, you know, cultural fit between, you know, business to business companies is, is critical. Um, mm. You know, Skellig and is very open. Um, and we're going to be, you know, open and upfront with our, our customers. We're technology agnostic. So, you know, yes, we do partner with companies, but we're, we're, off, we're offering, and Skellig has spent an incredible amount of resources, you know, going through technologies and vetting them and making sure they do do what they say they're going to do. <laughs> making sure our engineers are, are trained on them um, and that it's not just, you know, a credential that's kind of put on the wall and filed in a drawer and, and gone away. Um, so I guess it's if a company is, is lying to you and they're saying, hey, yeah, we're going to be all of these things. I don't know how you can, you know, suss out if someone is lying other than that, other than through references and and that but I, I think you get a good idea you know a, a cultural fit just kind of doing you know workshopping and and even introductory meetings you mm. get a good idea if if you're on the same page um but for me what you're looking for is is, is someone oh, like we want people to work with skelly because they want to work with us because it's a good experience for them because they're getting value out of it um not because we've you know sold them something that only skelly can maintain because it's all customized code um, yeah. you know, that's, that's not, that's not us. And that, that's something that, you know, I guess a good question would be, you know, do, you know, do we as a client own, own the outcome of the work? Like, do we have access to all of the source code? Do we have, um, you know, is the design doc? I, and that's another thing in life sciences, because it's so regulated, you know, you're, you're very rarely finding somebody that's um, not documented what they've done because they have, they have to. Yeah. And whereas in, you know, food and beverage, I, you see that a lot where it's like, oh, we went to this integrator to get the solution and they, they put something in and nobody knows how it works and there's no electrical drawings and nothing. Wow. Whereas in life sciences, that's, that's a lot more rare, but you know, do I own the source code? Do I own the IP? 
um, you know, is and sometimes too, it's in like the language of, of NDAs too. It's like, mm. is it open and, and coming at, you know, what's fair for both parties or are they very much one-sided? Yes, okay. Right? It, it's kind of a subtle thing. And sometimes you don't figure it out until, you know, the first time you work with someone that's, and that goes both ways too. Like uh, you can have, as an integrator, you're going to have customers that this is just not the right fit for us. Yeah. Um, for, for whatever reason, it's not, um, you know, integrators have to ask themselves that question too. You got to, you know, pick your customers that, that work well with your culture, not just the other way around. No, I think that's a fair point. And, and you raise some good questions. And I think, you know, understanding those areas about who owns the, the source code and who owns the, the data and who owns the, you know, the understanding of how things work, it makes a lot of sense. And I guess that, that kind of leads me on to one of my other questions, Ryan, is, you know, over the last few years, I've seen a particular shift away, we talk about MES here, a shift away from, you know, obviously huge systems, monolithic systems. Now there's a lot more modular-based systems, um, seeing systems with kind of low code, no code, all of that good stuff. What what are you thought, what are your thoughts on on how the these companies and um, these kind of open architecture MES platforms and modular platforms are are making uh, waves into the market? I mean, there's a lot of excitement about them right now. Um, mm. I th- I still think there there is a gap. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I haven't seen too much of, of a of Apprentice. I think they they're kind of keeping things a bit close to their their chest right now. Mm. Um, platforms like Tulip, which are you know no code, low code, and very open, um, they have a lot of really great use cases and really quick time to values. Um, but they're not set up, you know, if you look at like a life sciences thing, like, you know, we want to have an, an EBR type of system that's going to run all of our recipes corporately. You know, they're not set up like a Verum or um, mm. a, a Syncade or a PharmaSuite. Um, and they're not, they're not meant to be. Um, mm. But I think, it, you know, it goes to what the use case for, for the client is. And I think one of the, you know, the applications that um, you know, you see these, you know, cell and gene therapies where you're making a hundred batches a year or something like that, you know, but you try to put in, in, in one of these legacy or not legacy, I mean, one of these MES systems. And it's like you said, it's overkill. It's going to cost you, you know, $2 million in two <laughs> years to get it done. And you're trying to make a hundred batches. Now, all of a sudden, you know, my cost per batch is $200,000 or, mm. or $20,000 in MES. Just, just mm. so, it, you know, it doesn't fit there. Um, at the same time, these things are so personalized and you, you can't really rely on paperwork to do it either. So you need these kind of hybrid models where they're, you know, information is still secure, batches are still managed properly, but you're not having the kind of overness or I kind of think of like heavy and light is kind of yes. an analog that kind of goes on in, in my mind. And heavy is great for, you know, for some things and, and not for others. And I think the other thing that's gonna be interesting in the market is how these, you know, smaller companies or, or micro MES systems work and in terms of like are they going to be your only mes system or or are they going to augment what we have already you know you let's use let's use these new systems where they fit and let's use our legacy systems where they fit and i don't think it has to be either or i think there's some fighting a bit on you know on the it side well now we have you know two service contracts to maintain and you're going to have to have you know people trained on both systems which would of course be an extra cost but if the systems are also low code uh, mm. these newer ones so it, you know training isn't a isn't a big issue um but it's something you know it's going to be interesting to see where it goes i remember you know when ignition was you know a new product um mm. you know how much business grand tech got out of fixing bad ignition projects because the barrier to entry was so low yeah um, like any literally anyone can go 
I hate the word literally. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> can go to the internet, down, download Ignition, and 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 run it, right? Um, and it costs you, you know, a few thousand dollars. So, you, mm. you know, th these new platforms, you know, the barrier to entry is really low, um, and uh, people are going to make mistakes. But I think we're also going to, I mean, that's part of learning is is making mistakes. Yeah. But I think we're also going to find, you know, great use cases for them, especially like you know. Every time I'm on a factory floor now and I see a piece of paper, it, it, it just drives me nuts because I know the cost to digitize that is, you know, a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. And you're, I mean, you've got rid of paper there. I mean, maybe there's some extra validation costs in it, but it's not like, you know, this isn't an astronomical project. And if, but if it's one of those things where if you have an infrastructure in place already, that's here's our digitized paper records and all, you know, we're not making this into an EBR. And if we have an EBR system or if we, even if we have a paper MBR, you might just be printing off a copy of that later and, and, and doing it, but at least the information is secure. You know, you're guarding against yeah. things like um, entry errors, which can be like, yeah, there's, there's, there's no information on this, but I'm curious, like how often entry errors cause the holdup of a batch release, right? And now, mm -hmm. you, you know, you've got uh, an operator that, you know, missed a decimal place or something, and, you know, you're doing your batch release two months later, and, you know, it's great resignation, and they got a new job. And, uh, you know, how do you go and correct, how do you go and correct that and all, all, all sorts of things like that that can be solved with just, hey, we're going to put some, you know, review by exception in a, in, in a digitized paper thing, and we know that this value is out of bounds. And, and so those types of, th those types of problems with, and that th these smaller MES systems solve are, you know, really, really quick time to value. Um, I still have questions in my head on it, you know, if, are they going to replace the ecosystems and, you know, you know, certainly the players in this, like, you know, Verum that I mentioned, and, and mm. you know, they, these guys have spent billions of dollars on their MES platforms. They're not going away. There's still a huge market for their services, um, mm. and they have the right use case. And I think they're going to, you know, have other, you know, as they're challenged by competitors, just you know, just like Tesla with electric cars, like mm. these companies are going to have a more agile, lighter weight offering. Um, but I love seeing them like and it's, it's it's exciting. It's just about finding the right use case, so you don't. You, even with these lighter systems, you don't want them to try to do something that's too heavy because now your low code system becomes a really big configuration mess. Yeah. To try to get it to do something that, you know, Stincade might do natively. Yeah. No, I think it's, you raised some really good points, right? And I really like the passion and enthusiasm you speak with. And uh, I think that we're, we're at the end of the episode. So I just want to say thanks so much for, for joining on the episode. I think the listenership is going to get a lot of value from what you said. And, and hopefully it can um, spark some conversations where uh, people really question some of the decisions they've made or, or some of the decisions they've got in process. And thanks for joining me, Ryan. Thanks a lot, Daniel. I really enjoyed it. Good stuff. Oh, thanks, Ryan. I thought that was, um, thought it was a really good episode. You uh, you speak so well and you have so much enthusiasm and passion in, in what you say. So I thought it was great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Bye.